Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14 and verse 1. And um, as you know, the book of Zechariah was written to convince the returnees from Babylon to get busy rebuilding the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed 70 years earlier before the captivity started. And they kind of, when they got back from Babylon, they were sort of, um, they got busy with the temple rebuilding project and it got stalled. And so God raised up uh, Zechariah and Haggai uh, basically to encourage these returnees to rebuild the temple. So the book of Zechariah basically has four parts, as you know. There's an introductory call to repentance in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And then you go from chapter 1, verse 7, through the end of chapter 6, there's eight night visions all basically visions that Zechariah received in a single night, convincing the returnees in different ways to rebuild the temple. And of course, the night visions end with the crowning of a priest, Joshua. And that's a picture of Jesus by way of typology reigning in the millennial temple. So... That section ends that way because the, what's being communicated is the temple is a big deal to God. God has a future for the temple. So get busy rebuilding it. Section three of the book is chapters seven and eight where the question is asked, should we keep mourning the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed now that we're rebuilding the temple. And basically the answer there is don't mourn the effect, the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Mourn the cause, the covenant violations that led to the temple's destruction and the subsequent Babylonian captivity. So it's a condemnation of empty ritualism, just mourning a, an effect but not the cause that created the effect. So that's a good way to summarize chapters 7 and 8. And then the last part of the book is two burdens. Chapters 9 through 11, burden 1. Chapters 12 through 14, burden 2. And the first burden is Israel's postponed deliverance due to her rejection of Jesus. So the first coming of Christ and how he would be rejected by the nation and all of the millennial blessings that would be postponed for the nation, all of that is portrayed in that first burden, chapters 9 through 11, uh, 500 years before the nation rejected their Messiah. And then from there, we moved into the second burden, which is chapters 12 through 14, and it deals with Israel's future deliverance 
when she will accept her Messiah. So burden A, first coming of Christ, burden B, second coming of Christ. And so we talked about chapter 12 in that burden, which is a description really of Israel's physical and spiritual restoration. That type of philosophy or prophecy, I should say, continues into chapter 13, where it deals with the nation's future spiritual cleansing and deliverance. And now look at this. We're at the very end of the book, chapter 14. There's only 21 verses here. So we may finish this by Christmas. Amen. Um, But basically the focus of chapter 14, it's just an amazing chapter, and it's dealing with the kingdom. In other words, what exactly is the kingdom going to look like when Israel has embraced her Messiah and Yeshua, or Jesus, is ruling and reigning from David's throne? So chapter 14 basically has four parts. You have Jerusalem's deliverance, verses 1 through 7, in the midst of Armageddon. Verses 8 through 11, you have the conditions that the kingdom will look like once it comes. Verses 12 through 15 is the judgment that God is going to impose on the nations that came against Israel. And then it ends, verses 16 through 21, with uh, kingdom worship. You know, what's worship going to look like in the kingdom age? And, of course, Zechariah, a priest, uh, would be focused on the temple and worship, and so that's a fitting way for him to conclude his book. And this is all given as an incentive to get these returnees to get busy Rebuilding temple number two, because look at, look at what God's going to do with your humble efforts. That's why it says in the book of Zechariah, don't despise the day of small beginnings. You have no idea what God's going to do with your tiny efforts. And their tiny efforts are going to grow into something very, very big with the temple restored in the kingdom. So that's sort of an overview of chapter 14, and let's see if we can, my goal would be to get through verse 11 uh, this evening. If not, I guess we'll be happy with getting through verse 7. But chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, is really a description of Jerusalem's deliverance at the Battle of Armageddon. So here's a little outline, if you will, of these first seven verses and notice the theme. I call this the theme verse because the theme of verse 1 is unpacked in the rest of the chapter. So notice verse 1. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. So you'll notice that it predicts two things. Number one, the nations at Armageddon are going to come to take the spoil or the loot from the land of Israel. And at their darkest hour, God is going to step in as a warrior and protect Israel when no one else will. 
And in that process, Israel will come to faith, the kingdom will come to the earth, and then in the second part of the verse, all of the spoil and all of the plunder that the nations have taken from Israel will be brought back to the Israelis. So this idea of taking uh, money from the Jews, I mean, you've, we've seen that sort of typified in the Holocaust, um, where the occupying Nazis would come into Jewish homes and just take the home away, and they would you know, incinerate the Jews or kill the Jews, but they would, you know, leave the teeth uh, in so they could pry the gold out of gold fillings out of the teeth. I mean, all of this is. Uh, historically documented in a place called Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, which is the Holocaust Memorial. And these things really happened to Israel in the World War II era. And if I'm reading my Bible right, um, the same type of thing is supposed to happen and worse. The nations will come to seize spoil or wealth from Israel. The Lord will protect Israel. And then all of the wealth that the nations took is going to be recycled back to the Jews. If you just skip from verse 1 to verse 14, you'll see verse verse 14 explaining what I just tried to explain in verse 1. It says, Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all of the surrounding nations will be gathered Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. So everything the nations plundered is going to come back to Israel, I think, uh, many times over. So verse 1 from that standpoint is sort of the theme verse of what's unpacked in the whole chapter. And then you go to verse 2 and it's a description of the crisis. You know, why does God allow crises? He allows crises so that he can show up as the rescuer. That's why crises go on in our individual lives. God wants to show up, you know, as the book of Daniel says, that fourth man in the furnace, you remember? Daniel chapter 3, I mean, how can that happen unless there's a furnace and unless God's people are thrown into the furnace? Um And we can all, you know, go through different aspects of our lives when we're in a crisis and we can, we can see experientially God showing up. And that's what's going to happen in this chapter. But that can't happen without a global crisis. So the crisis is described in verse two. Verse two says, for I will gather all the nations. Now notice it's God sort of like Ezekiel describes it, chapters 38 and 39, hooks in the jaw. He's drawing these nations to make war against his people. So God is actually the one gathering these nations against Israel. Why? To create a crisis whereby he can be the rescuer and receive his proper glory. He says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, The city will be captured, the houses will be plundered, the women ravished, half of the city exiled. 
but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So Zechariah 14 verse 2 is very clear that the time in history will come when all the nations will come against Jerusalem, every single nation on planet earth. And if all means all, um, very sadly, you have to reach a point in history when even the late great United States, assuming it's even around when these things happen, you know, will also turn its back on Israel. This is not just predicted in chapter 14. You might remember it's predicted in chapter 12. Zechariah 12 verse 3 says it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all nations. All who lift it will be severely injured. And the nations, plural, of the earth will be gathered um, against it. So as far as God is concerned, the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem is the centerpiece of what he's doing. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 5 and verse 5, says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with the lands all around her. Because Israel and the city of Jerusalem is the covenanted nation. So she is the centerpiece of everything God is going to do in the end times. Because people say to me, you know, why do you believe we're in the end times? You know, people have been saying for for the last 2,000 years we're in the end times. The reason I believe we're in the end times is because something very strategic and significant has happened in our lifetime. The nation of Israel has been politically reborn. Beginning May the 14th, 1948. Without that piece of the puzzle... Um, in place, the whole end time scenario doesn't make any sense. And so that's the first plank or the first piece of the puzzle that has to come into existence is the rebirth of Israel. So all of the other things happening in our world, you know, the borders crisis in America, the inflation, uh, the World Economic Forum, mark of the beast technology, all of that stuff is very interesting, but you have to consider it alongside the central sign, which is the rebirth of Israel. Because it says right here, God is going to bring all nations against Israel and Jerusalem. And Ezekiel says that Israel dwells at the center of the nations. Ezekiel later says, in chapter 38, verse 12, of the Jews who live at the center of the world. The Hebrew word for center in these verses, Ezekiel 5 and Ezekiel 38, is the Hebrew word for navel or belly button. Just as the belly button is the center of the body. As far as God is concerned, Israel and the city of Jerusalem in particular is the center of the earth. And that's a very different way of looking at the Middle East. Because that's not how the world looks at the Middle East. Israel is just this tiny nation, you know, that's in the way of progress. 
We've got to fix the Jewish problem so we can move on. Um, that's how man looks at the Middle East, but that's not how God looks at the Middle East. God looks at the Middle East as if she's the center of the entire world. So it's no big surprise that Zechariah would predict all the nations coming against Jerusalem in the last days. I, I think I've given you several times this quote by Charles Feinberg, uh, a Hebrew Christian. It's one of the best... Um, uh, commentaries you could ever find on the book of Ezekiel. But he says of these passages, an interesting phrase is employed to define the place where God's people will be dwelling. It is called the middle, literally the navel of the earth, as explained in Ezekiel 5.5. 5. The land of Israel is in the center of the earth, as far as God's purposes for the world is concerned. Rabbinic literature states, quote, and he's quoting here Midrash, which is uh, Jewish literature. It's not scriptural, but it's explanatory of scripture in many ways. It says, as the navel is set in the center of the human body, so the land of Israel is the navel of the world situated in the center of the world, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel. And the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem. And the holy place in the center of the sanctuary. And the Ark of the Covenant in the center of the holy place. And the foundation stone before the holy place, because from it the world was founded. And this is a Jewish perspective on Israel. It's it's the absolute middle of the earth. Jerusalem being in the middle of the land of Israel. The temple being in the middle of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the temple. The most holy place in the middle of the Ark of the Covenant. And so I share this with you because it, you know, it uh, uh, helps or it elucidates what the prophet Ezekiel is talking about when he uses that word navel or belly button to describe Israel in general and Jerusalem in particular. So God is going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem in the last days, creating the crisis which he himself is going to demonstrate his glory by rescuing Israel. And look at these descriptors there just in verse 2 that we just read. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. So you see captured, plundered, ravished, exiled, Israel is in a real tough position, in other words. But there's hope because you go to the end of verse 2 and it says, but the rest of the people will be not cut off from the city. So there's a remnant that is going to survive this. And last week when we were at the end of chapter 13, you know, we saw that fraction that this is going to actually involve two-thirds of the destruction of the Jewish people. In this event, one third will, will survive. 
So this is really, this is tough stuff here. Um, yes, Israel is going to be restored, but God is going to have to shake the nation to the absolute core of its being to get it to the place where they recognize that their Messiah is Yeshua, a Jesus Christ. So we see the theme verse, we see the crisis, and that precipitates a coming warrior, which is none other than Jesus Christ himself. It says in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations when he fights on a day of battle. So when no one else will fight for Israel, Jesus will show up and will actually fight physically for Israel. Um, Psalm 121 and verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Now, the rest of the nations can forget about Israel, come against Israel. It doesn't matter. Israel, according to the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22, is God's firstborn son. And it's like your your own child coming under attack. And that certainly kicks in Mama Grizzly, maternal instincts, paternal instincts, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to defend your child. That's essentially what Jesus is doing here uh, for the nation of Israel. This is when Jesus comes back, not as a savior. He's a savior for Israel. But as a warrior. He's not coming back in this sense here as the lamb. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is where you can cross-reference the verse we were using to kind of test our sound system a little earlier, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are as a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. An obvious reference to Jesus. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So I'll make the case in a minute that those following him on white horses, part of that group is going to be you, me, as his previously raptured church, returning with him at the end of the 70th week of Daniel to rule and reign over planet Earth. So I hope you got your horse named because you're going to be on one. From his mouth come my, my friend Don Perkins, who's coming for our prophecy conference February 24th and 25th. He's already got his horse named. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his name and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is the 
Jesus that nobody is comfortable with. Everybody's comfortable with the Jesus in the manger, you know, the Savior, the Lamb. And if that's your whole understanding of Jesus, you've got, you've got half of it right. The other part of it, he's coming back as warrior king. Uh, this is why Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he become angry. In other words, if you're going to get right with Jesus, you better do it now in the lamb phase rather than the lion phase because in the lion phase, it's going to be too late. Uh, you better get right with him as the Savior. Don't wait till he comes back as judge because once he comes back as judge, it's going to be too late. Kiss the sun, Psalm 2, uh, lest he become angry. You'll notice the word day, verse 1. It's also in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3, day. So this is speaking of a specific time in history uh, when these events will take place. So we move away from the warrior to the return, uh, verse verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Now, right out of the gate, you see that this is not some kind of nebulous, you know, spiritual thing. Uh, There's one allegorist, I have his commentary on my shelf, and he says, well, this isn't literal. This is just, you know, when Christians get saved, the Holy Spirit comes into them, you know, and all this nonsense. That's that's not what the passage says. I mean, if you want to preach a sermon on people getting saved and the Holy Spirit comes into them, you don't use this passage. Uh, There's other passages you could use for that, like... The new birth discourse that Jesus had with Nicodemus, but this verse isn't even dealing with that. It's dealing with Jesus's physical reentry into planet Earth, and it has to be literal because it mentions Jerusalem and it mentions the Mount of Olives. I mean, nobody takes Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives as symbolic anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, suddenly, they they get, they get symbolized here. But this, this uh, return of Jesus to the earth is just as physical. It's just as literal. It's just as tangible. It's just as real. As Jesus came into our world 2,000 years ago. Since he physically came into our world 2,000 years ago and died roughly the age 33 and had a three-year ministry, just as those were earthly events, this is describing here an earthly event um, at the end of uh, end of human history. So this is the physical return of Jesus Christ. Now, all all of Christendom, if they're Orthodox, even if they're off on the rapture timing or other issues, in order for you to be an Orthodox Christian. 
you have to believe that Jesus Christ is physically coming back to planet Earth. All of the great creeds and confessions of Christendom all, all state that. They're not as precise as our doctrinal statement here at Sugarland Bible Church, but they all believe it. So if you're in a group of people that claims, you know, Jesus is just going to come back allegorically or symbolically or something like that, and these things aren't literal, you're not even in a Christian group. That's a that's a, what we would call an imitation of Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox Christianity has always maintained that Jesus Christ is coming back physically to planet Earth. Now, what's the oldest book of the Bible? Book of Job. Job 19, the oldest book of the Bible. And these events happened 600 years at least before the book of Genesis was even written by Moses. Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives... And at the last, in other words, the end, he will take his stand on the earth. That's the oldest book of the Bible affirming what Zechariah is speaking here, the bodily, physical return of Jesus. Now, this is not the rapture, because in the rapture, we are caught up, 1 Thessalonians 4 17, to meet the Lord in the air. See, the rapture is something where, assuming this happens in our lifetime, he doesn't actually come back to the earth. We go up in the air to meet him. So this is why we take the return of Christ and we divide it into two phases. First, he's coming for the church in what's called the rapture. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. And then secondly, at the end of the tribulation period, he's coming back to planet Earth where his feet will actually touch down on this planet. It tells you where he's coming, by the way. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. See, we're not, he's not coming down, we're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the rapture. This is talking about the second advent where his feet actually touch down on planet Earth. Now, before Jesus ascended, uh, there's a 40-day period in between his resurrection and ascension. You'll read about it in the book of Acts, where he's ministering to his disciples. At the end of that 40-day period, it says this in Acts 1, uh, verses 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking. And a cloud received him out of their sight. That's the ascension. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, in other words, think of that, you're talking to Jesus and all of a sudden he's lifted up and I think they could actually see him going. So it doesn't say how fast he went, um, but they're, they're watching him go into the air. I assume it would be pretty fast, but they could physically see it. 
It says they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, and behold, two men in white clothing stood by them. Now, I, I would think the two men in white clothing would be angels. And they, they also said, these are the two men speaking to the disciples who are staring up into the sky. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? I mean, that's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Of course, you wouldn't say that to an angel, but looking into the sky because we just saw Jesus, you know, take off. And then the two men says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come. This is his return. He will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Oh, so now we can fill out the, the doctrine of the second advent, not the rapture. But the second advent, how did Jesus leave? Physically? How's he coming back? Physically. How did he leave? Visibly. They're watching him leave the earth. How's he coming back? Visibly. In fact, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, says when this happens, every eye will see it. It's It'll be the greatest spectacle perhaps the world has ever seen. How did he leave in a body? Remember Thomas had touched his wounds and his side. You remember during this 40-day period, they actually had a meal together, Jesus with his disciples. These are all bodily activities. They're actually asking him questions about the kingdom. And he's answering those questions. So how did he leave in a body? How's he coming back? He's coming back in a body. Where did he leave from? The earth? Well, where is he coming back to? The earth. Um, according to Acts 1, 9 through 11, where did he leave from? He left from the Mount of Olives. Where is he coming back to? He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. So, years ago, the book that really got me interested in Bible prophecy, one of them was the book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And I I still recommend that book to people. Um, I don't agree with every little tidbit like I used to, but I think his big picture um, is very good. And on page 163, he makes this statement. I was just enthralled by this when I read this um, back in the early 1980s. I made a big mark next to my, in the section where this occurred. And I pulled it off the shelf today. And my mark was still there. Look at that. And uh, this is what Hal Lindsey says. He says, Jesus' feet will first touch the earth where they left, on the Mount of Olives. Now, I should alert you to the fact that Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a slightly different uh, view of this. He believes that Jesus is going to actually come back to a place called Petra, which is in Jordan, where the Jews will be hiding from the Antichrist. So he thinks that Jesus is going to come back to Petra first, rescue the Jews, and secondarily make his way into Jerusalem and up the Mount of Olives. 
um, how Lindsay's view is he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. So there's a, there's a little bit of uh, collegial intramural sparring on things like this. But, you know, it's not really something we're starting a new church over. We think he's coming back to the Mount of Olives first church kind of thing would be cutting the sandwich meat a little thin, I guess. Okay. He's coming back. Amen? All right. Jesus' feet will first touch the earth where they left the earth on the Mount of Olives. The mountain, that's the Mount of Olives, will split um, in two with a great earthquake the instant that Jesus' foot touches it. The great crevice which results, which we just read in verse 4, will run east and west through the center of the mountain. It will go east to the north tip of the Dead Sea and west to the Mediterranean Sea, Zechariah 14. Now here's the part I found very interesting. He says, it was reported to me that an oil company doing seismic studies of this area in quest of oil discovered a gigantic fault running east and west precisely through the center of the Mount of Olives. That was amazing to me to to read that. The fault is so severe that it could split at any time. And then he says here, it is waiting for the foot, or I guess plural, feet. His feet are going to, it's almost like our whole world right now, right down to geography, is set up for the end times. There's other passages of scripture that describe a great earthquake around this time period. In the land of Israel, Ezekiel 38, verse 19. I've shared this article with you before. It says, after tremors, experts warn a a huge quake is the greatest threat facing Israel. Scientists say thousands could die because Israel, which sits on a major fault line, has ignored warnings to strengthen homes and schools. After a series of minor tremors rattled through northern Israel over the last two weeks, experts warned that the country is negligently unprepared for a major earthquake that could likely kill thousands of people, including many children. And the article goes on and talks about how the nation, for whatever reason, is sort of ignoring uh, this this threat of a of an earthquake. It's like a you know, I mean, the Bible says there's going to be earthquakes in the land of Israel in the end times. And what does the geography and the topography of the day indicate? That there's fault lines all over Israel. The Bible says that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives and it's going to split. Well, what does the topography and the geology and the geography indicate? That there's a fault line that runs right through the Mount of Olives waiting to split at any time. You know, it's like the Lord is saying, how many clues can I give you? Get ready. Ready or not, I'm coming back. And the world has been prepared for it. You drop down to verse 5 and it talks about the remnant that will flee as these events are happening. It says, you will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. 
Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So there's a remnant that flees. Where do they go? They go to this place called Azel. You say, where is that? I don't have any idea. I tried to figure it out. It's an uncertain place. The Ryrie Study Bible says it could be a village near Jerusalem. But you'll notice that it's a literal village. Just like the Mount of Olives is a literal place. And you can't all of a sudden turn these events into something allegorical about Jesus you know, coming into your heart when you get saved. You'll notice that the earthquake that happens, which is described in verse 4 and in verse 5, is going to be just like a prior earthquake. Because it mentions there in verse 5, an earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So the only real reference to that prior earthquake in the days of Uzziah, Old Testament, is in Amos chapter 1, verse 1 which says the words of Amos, who were among the sheep herders from Tekoya, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So there was some earthquake all the way back in the days of Amos that's used here as a marker for dating the book of Amos. What was that earthquake back in the days of Amos? Nobody really is absolute certain about it. Uh, Charles Ryrie in the Ryrie Study Bible says, the Amos 1-1 earthquake referred to by Zechariah in our passage, Zechariah 14 verse 5, and Josephus, Now, who was Josephus? He was a first century historian who wrote a little after the time of Christ and he commented on various Bible stories. Josephus relates the earthquake in Amos' day to Uzziah's sin in acting as priest. Second Chronicles 26 verse 16. So Uzziah, in one of the, one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible, Um, as king, decided to go into the temple and act as a priest. He decided to mix the offices of king and priest together. Why did he do it? He did it because of pride. It says pride in the text around 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. He had just come off a string of victories in every area. And he thought the rules that govern everybody else didn't apply to him, which is dangerous when you have success. Because when you're successful, you start to think that the rules are just for the little people, right? So many, many people fall in their lives morally, ethically, biblically after a time of success. I mean, your your time of success is your most vulnerable time. 
And so Uzziah just decided, you know, I'm going to go into the temple and I'm going to usurp privileges that belong only to the priests, even though I'm not a priest, I'm a king. Priests are supposed to come from which tribe? Levi, Uzziah came from Judah. Saul, the first king of the United Kingdom, lost his whole kingdom because he did something like this, you remember, in 1 Samuel 13. So Uzziah knew it was wrong, and he did it anyway. And he went into the, and he was warned. You'll read Second Chronicles 26. The prophets and everybody else, the priests, were saying, don't do this, don't do this, because God always kept the two offices separate. The only one that can mix the two will be the Messiah himself. That's the significance of the crowning of the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 6. Only the Messiah can mix those offices together. Humans weren't supposed to do that. So all of the priests were saying, don't do it. And Uzziah went and did it anyway. And God took Uzziah and struck him from head to toe with leprosy. And that leprosy stayed with him his whole life. He lived his whole life as a leper in a private house, Second uh, Chronicles 26 says. So according to Josephus, when that happened, there was some kind of earthquake that took place. You know, God wasn't happy with that, to say the least. And so the earthquake that's being described there in verse 5 is just as real and it's just as literal as the earthquake that Josephus is speaking of um, in Uzziah's day. So the remnant is going to flee to Azel. There's going to be some kind of earthquake as there was during the days of Uzziah. And you'll notice that when the warrior king returns, he's coming back with his holy ones. End of verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come and all the his or all the holy ones with him. So who are the holy ones? Well, angels will come back with Jesus. Matthew 25 verse 31 says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Angels could be part of that group. Jude verse 14, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, a prophecy about the second advent. But the holy ones is another group. It's the church, the previously raptured church that's been with the Lord in the Father's house for seven years. It's in the passage that we read earlier. Revelation 19, verse 14, describing the return of Christ. It says, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on on horses. I hope you understand this as a Christian that you are destined as a Christian for earthly authority. Augustine in the 4th century came along and introduced this method of interpretation that all of that end time stuff is just heavenly. It's not earthly. 
And so we think of the afterlife as, you know, I'm just going to heaven, I'm going up in the sky somewhere, maybe I'm going to be on a cloud, maybe I'm going to have some kind of white garment on, I guess I'm going to do a lot of singing. And so we we completely, because of the influence of Augustine, we completely think of the afterlife as all celestial. What your Bible actually says is your role in the future is heavily terrestrial. Yes, John 14, 2 and 3, we are with the Lord in the Father's house for seven years. But yeah, but pastor, it says there's a mansion in the sky waiting for me. Well, that's really not what the Bible says. When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, he does not use the word mansion. He uses the Greek word mone, which is descriptive of an inn. You check into an inn or a hotel and you're just there temporarily before you check out and go somewhere else. I realize that a lot of you are reading from the King James translation, which is a very good translation usually, and it uses the word mansions. But that's not what the Greek word says. The Greek word says mone, which is a temporary dwelling. Uh, when um, Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, he used a Latin word that sounds a lot like the English word mansions. And when Tyndale, William Tyndale, created his English translation, he, he brought into the English translation in John 14, 2 and 3, the word mansion. The King James Version followed the Tyndale translation and puts mansions in the text. But the text itself doesn't say mansions. What it says is it's an inn, a temporary place. Now, why, why make a big deal about this? Because if you go into heaven and you're in a mansion and you have a jacuzzi and you have a sauna and you have fine dining and you have a tennis court and you have a golf course, And all of these things associated with mansions. I mean, Keith Green, the singer, used to sing a song about this. You know, if the Lord created our world in six days and he's been working on my mansion for 2,000 years. Wow, just think what I'm going to get when I get up into heaven. And so we have this view that, gosh, my whole existence is to go into heaven into my mansion. So if you check into your mansion and you have all of these luxuries... Then the Lord says, okay, time to leave and go back to the earth to rule and reign. Do you think you're going to want to leave? You're not going to want to leave. It's too, it's too cushy and comfy up there. So that, so what it actually says, and I'm not, don't, I'm not uh, saying you're going to be in some kind of slum or something like that either. What I'm, what I'm saying is the Greek word is mone, which perfectly describes we're in heaven with the Lord for seven years. It's a great time. But it's time to check out. It's time to leave. Why? Because my ultimate destiny is on the earth. For I will rule and reign under his delegated authority for a thousand years. 
That's the terrestrial, earthly understanding that Augustine ruined. It's right there in the book of Revelation when it's describing the church. It says in Revelation 1 verse 6, He has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God. And Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in chapter 5 verse 10, same book, the book of Revelation, it says you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign. By the way, the Greek verb reign there is in the future tense. So contrary to what people are telling you, the church is not reigning right now. Obviously, the church cannot be reigning right now because we have martyrdoms all over the world. The church is not reigning, but I'll tell you what is happening. The church is in training because she will be reigning. It's like Joseph from age 17 to age 30, wasn't in authority over anything. He kept getting falsely accused, thrown into prison, all of these things happening. Well, what was the Lord doing with his life? He was preparing him for when he would reign. Because the day would come at the age of 30 where he would be second in command in all of Egypt. And the Lord, during that trial period, was preparing him for that role. That's what's happening to the church right now. That's what's happening in your life right now. You are not reigning. You're being trained to reign. Training time for reigning time. It's a completely different way of looking at your problems. Because every single problem you're facing right now as a Christian, God has sovereignly allowed into your life to prepare you for your future kingdom role when you, like Joseph, will be in second in command over the whole earth. Jesus, of course, being first command. But it says here, Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign, what does it say here? Upon the earth. It's right there in your Bible. Augustine would never contemplate or take seriously a verse like that because he reduced everything to heaven. And thinking about mansions in the sky doesn't harmonize with what your Bible says. Your your role is to return with Jesus under his delegated authority to rule and reign over planet Earth. It's a terrestrial future. And while we're with the Lord in heaven for seven years, the unlawful usurper of planet earth, the devil, is being evicted. And finally, when he's thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years and the kingdom starts, then the Lord unveils not his bride, but his wife, that's us, and we're reigning under his delegated authority. I mean, I was trying to explain this one time in a church and I looked over the corner of my eye and it was the music leader and he was like getting real nervous. He was right shuffling around and afterwards I said, well, what was the problem? He said, well, you ruined all my worship songs at the end because 
I had all these songs about mansions in the sky and and you know that that's unfortunately that's how most Christians think that's related to the songs we sing and it's an Augustinian influence but just read the bible i mean you'll see, you'll see it as clearly as it can be seen that Jesus is coming back to this earth with you and you will rule and reign under his delegated authority not that he needs us but he gives us the privilege And that's why you get these stories in the Bible, like in Luke 19. It says one guy was given, I can't remember how many cities, five cities. Another guy's given ten. In other words, based on how we allowed the Lord to mold our character through the trials of life, we graduate some to limited roles, because they weren't as cooperative in the middle tense of salvation as they could have been. Others to more significant roles, because we did cooperate with the Lord, hopefully in the middle tense of our salvation. But some are given greater degrees of authority than others. And this is all what's being described here when he's coming back with his holy ones. You look at verse 6, see if we can get through verse 7. Look at verse 6. It says, in that day, there will be no light, and the luminaries will dwindle. This harmonizes really well with other verses of that time period. It says, for example, in the book of Isaiah, um, Excuse me, the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 29. It says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Revelation 16, verse 10 in uh, the fifth bowl judgment, it says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they nod their tongues because of the pain. God has a lot of sarcasm in how he operates. And this is when he says, do you like spiritual darkness that you're in? Do you like living under the beast and the world economic forum and all these other things? Do you like that? Do you like spiritual darkness? Okay, I'll turn the whole planet dark. And this is the kind of thing that Zechariah is seeing there in verse 6. Verse 7, which we'll end with verse 7, describes the uniqueness of this time period. It says, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor, nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. So this time period is so unique. Um, It's a time period known only to the Lord. It's a time period when all of the normal laws of nature that we know seem to be set aside. But it says something very interesting at the end of verse 7. It says, it will come about at the evening time that there will be light. When it's darkest, it's the lightest. When it's supposed to be the darkest, it becomes the lightest. So this is speaking of interstellar activity. 
Isaiah 13, verse 10 of this general time period. It says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Matthew 24:29. I read to you a little earlier. So, the normal process of dark and, and, and light, day and night, seems to be set aside. But in the end, what does it say in verse 7? It will come about that at evening time there will be light. So, it's darkest just before the dawn. See that? At a time in human history where it's the absolute darkest, it says in verse 7, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. When it should be dark, it actually becomes light. Now, I think that description fits very, very nicely with the description of the coming of Jesus as the morning star. Jesus is called the morning star to my knowledge, uh, three times in the Bible. Once in 2 Peter 1, verse 19. A second time in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 28. And he's called a morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. And do some, uh, some research on this morning star. It's a fascinating thing. It's the star that breaks forth when in the normal orbit the inhabitants of the earth are experiencing their physically darkest point. In other words, at the darkest point of the night, the morning star appears. And I think this is the kind of thing that's being described here. The world is in total blackness. It's in total darkness physically and spiritually. And just at the right time, the morning star shows up when all hope is is gone. That's why the uh, late Adrian Rogers would say this about our world. He, he would say it's growing gloriously dark. Because the world at its darkest point is now a candidate to experience the morning star, Jesus Christ. Just as the morning star breaks forth at the darkest point of the night. And so um, I find this very, very interesting. So we've seen the theme, the crisis, the warrior, the return, the remnant, the darkness, the uniqueness. And the next time I'm with you, we'll look at the kingdom conditions that he will usher in, which are described there in verses 8 through 11. So I would encourage you in preparation for next time to uh, continue through the book of Zechariah. Um, Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth, and the way it speaks into our lives. And I do ask, Lord, if anybody is here that doesn't know you personally or If anybody is watching online or listening 
or even watching or listening archives after the fact. I pray that for them today would be the day of salvation where they would put their personal faith in Christ alone for salvation so that they can have a relationship with you as lamb before it's too late and you return as judge. And the age of grace at that point will be over. Uh, We ask anybody listening would change their eternal destiny right now by putting their faith in Christ alone for salvation. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Um, If you got to take off or otherwise collect your kids or whatever, now is a good time to do that. And if anybody.